The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, good evening. This is the third of a series of four uh, talks that I was invited to do on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And I'm, I'm, uh, I was really pleased with the topic because the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are the heart of the Dharma. They really are the center of the teachings. And the first week we talked a little bit about the, the um, format of the four, the four Truths and the insight into the nature of our dissatisfaction with our life in the world and how that is the result of some built-in tendencies that we have um, to want things pleasant, to want to survive and become something in the future, to make the unpleasant, threatening, scary stuff go away. Nothing wrong with those, with those impulses, but they don't lead to peace of mind. The Buddha found that through the cessation of that, those kinds of impulses, tanha is the Pali word, for them, um, the experience of freedom from those from those impulses was uh, quite profound. Uh, nibbana at the extreme, and the the fourth truth is the the uh, formulation of the eightfold path, which although it's eight, when I first heard it, I thought, geez, just way too many folds. <laughs> um, but this is this is the way of being without without tanha, without suffering. And the other the other element that we, we focused on that first week was that the eightfold path is a unit. It's one path, it's one way of being. It's not eight separate elements that just sort of got scraped up together because eight is a nice number. Um, they're, all, they're all related to uh, a style of living which is uh, without, uh, without dukkha. Dukkha being the Pali word for the kind of dissatisfaction that we all uh, encounter in, in, uh, in our experience in the world. The, the elements of the path really are Inseparable. I, I think the metaphor I used was a basketball. So you can have an eightfold basketball. It would be a sphere that weighs about two pounds, give or take. It's about, I don't know, 14, 15 inches across. It's filled with compressed air. It's brown. It's got little dimples all over it. It's made of rubber. It's, did I say it weighs a couple pounds? Is that eight? Basically, it's, it's a... It's, you can't play with just the brown. And the, the practice that the Buddha taught was not simply mindfulness meditation, but it also involved um, understanding and behavior. We talked the second week about um, a couple of the elements of the path. The Eightfold Path is... Uh, traditionally divided into three segments. There are two elements which are considered the wisdom elements, which are right understanding and right intention. In this case, the word right means, um, is a translation of a word that means uh, in the service of ending dukkha, in the service of uh, the cessation of dissatisfaction. So understanding and intention and then the three behavioral elements, sila is the word usually translated as ethical behavior, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And these would be the behavioral um, correlates of, of a life that um, didn't make things worse by adding dukkha into the mix. And the, the last three elements, and those are the three that we'll talk about tonight. And the last three elements are... Um, are considered the meditation elements, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And we'll talk about those 
next week. The three, the three sila elements, speech, action, and livelihood, are a reflection of intention. Um, because, rights, because speech, action, and livelihood are, in, in, in the context of the Eightfold Path, are the forms of behavior that don't, uh, that don't take tanha's bait, that don't take um, uh, the, the impulses of greed and ill will or aversion uh, and act on them. Um, the, Buddha, the Buddha tells about how before he was uh, a fully awakened critter, he um, thought there seemed to be two kinds of intentions in, in my life. Those are intentions that are for the benefit of myself and others, and those that are, would be to the detriment of myself and others. The ones that would be to the detriment would be uh, greed, uh, ill will, or anger, and cruelty. We don't think of ourselves as cruel often, but any time that you are wishing unpleasant experience for another might, might not be ghastly, but there's still the wish for unpleasantness. Buddha said those, those impulses could be abandoned. I, was in, I find that just, just staggering, to contemplate abandoning those impulses which he uh, has become aware would be to the detriment of oneself and others. And to cultivate instead the impulses of renunciation, which means basically stepping away from that desire, step back from that dove bar. Um, so renunciation of the impulses of greed and longing. And it would be uh, non-ill will. Sometimes it's suggested that it would be love, but the Buddha was talking just about the absence of ill will and the absence of uh, delusion. So right intention would be the cultivation of, of uh, those elements that lead to or are part of a life without dukkha. I actually think that the sila elements of the path plus intention are, in, for me, they're the, the goal of the practice. They're the, the heart of the practice. And that the meditation practice is in service of our life off the cushion. But sila is about our intention. Not so much uh, specific do's and don'ts, specific bright line behavioral uh, kinds of uh, rules. Although right speech, right action, and right livelihood mean action, speech, and livelihood that are in the service of the cessation of tanha and the abandonment of dukkha, it, get, it got translated into a set of precepts. There are five precepts. Many of you are familiar with them. Some of you may even have active practices with them. And the precepts are usually, I'll just run through them conventionally pretty quick, uh, not to kill, not to, not to steal or take what's not freely given, not to engage in uh, harmful sexual activity, uh, not to speak falsely, and not to uh, use uh, alcohol and drugs that lead to heedlessness. Interestingly, the, these were also the vows of the, um, the Jains. Mahavira, who was the leader of the Jains, the, the first four are the four vows of the Jains. So this is sort of the ambient morality of the time. And for them, these were rules. Uh, almost commandments. But the Buddha was, the Buddha, um, he flipped the meaning of a lot of the terms that, that were present at the time in order to um, focus attention on what he was saying. So, for example, the word Brahman referred 
conventionally at the time to the people who were born into the Brahmin caste and uh, it was a matter of birth uh, pretty much. The Buddha said, yes, there are Brahmins, but it's not by birth that you become a Brahmin, it's by uh, mastering uh, oneself. One who has mastered oneself um, is the Brahmin. The word uh, karman is a Sanskrit word that referred to the performance of ritual that was done by, by the Brahmin priests. So particular rituals were aimed at making things go well in the, in the world for people. Bring rain, make your, your animals fertile, uh, success and, and health. And the Brahmins would perform these rituals and the rituals would involve the pronunciation of mantras and lighting incense and there was lots of specialization. So the mantras were to be pronounced at a particular pitch for a specific duration. The incenses were to be mixed from particular kinds of uh, ingredients. And if everything was right, well, good karma. Things came off as intended. And it, it came to be understood as karma, action, the behavior. But the Buddha said, karma is intention. Not just what you do. I mean, you can do a particular action with a variety of intentions. You can honk the horn on your car. Beep, beep. Now, the horn is going to sound the same if you honk it the same way. But you could be honking to get the attention of a friend. Hi, how are you? You know, me over here, take a look. You know, could be doing that. Or you could be honking, same honk. Somebody's backing up into you and you're alerting. Wait, hold it. Different intention. Or you could be angry at some guy who cut in on you. So you could be beep, beep. Same expression, but different intentions. The Buddha said what's important here is the intention. So there's a difference. For us in the West, we're used to commandments. We're used to rules. You know, thou shalt nots. We, we know there's a, a list of them out there, even if we don't know them all. Um, but commandments are very different from uh, training, training rules, which is what the precepts, the purpose of the, the precepts are. The precepts are rules that are set up for investigation. Um, it's not so much a matter of um, always following the rule. In fact, in some cases, you wouldn't want to follow a rule. You know, don't speak falsely. I always think that if the Nazis knock on the door and ask if Anne Frank is there, you sort of want to lie. <laughs> That's probably the skillful thing to do. You don't want to, and you don't want to hedge. You don't want, you know, it didn't work. It depends on what you mean is. It didn't work for Bill Clinton. You know, what's important is the intention for the Buddha. What's important is the intention. Um, actually, if what you're working with is rules, it cultivates a different kind of thing. It cultivates judgment. And there really isn't much to investigate. There's just a finding of fact. Uh, is Anne Frank here or not? Ah, spoke falsely? Bad. Judgment. You either meet the rule or not. Whereas as a training practice, if you're practicing a musical instrument and you don't practice one morning, well, you don't practice one morning. It's not, you know, it's not bad. It's not morally compromised somehow. I think of, the, I think of the, the precepts particularly as, and, and the precepts are important practice tools. I think of them as markers, more for the kind of things we should watch out for. I remember was, because often in, in our activity, 
we just don't notice. I used to sail out on the bay a lot, and one, one time I was uh, heading towards Angel Island from Berkeley, and I looked all around. There wasn't anything out there. I had to go below, get some stuff. I was down below for just a minute or so, came back up and looked around, and there was a buoy that was going across my bow about 10, 15 feet ahead of me. It was just going by like that fast. I, you know, if I, if I were 15 feet ahead, it would have just... But I wasn't moving. I mean, the buoy wasn't moving. I was moving. But I, because I was in the current, I didn't see it. And it's the same with our behavior often. We don't see just just what we're, what we're, um, where we are. And so the precepts are focusing our attention in particular, in particular directions. Um, and encouraging us to be mindful at a particular moment. And to be mindful in a particular way. To be mindful about our intention, whether our intention is for the benefit of ourselves and others, or for the detriment of ourselves and others. And, um, and that would give us a chance to abandon. This is, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha told his son, this is what he told his son, he said, when you're about to uh, engage in some kind of behavior, contemplate, is this for your benefit, the benefit of others? Is this for the detriment? The detriment of others. This is what he told the Kalamas when they said, "What, you know, should we be? Uh, uh, how, why should we believe you? We had some guy here last week, and we got another guy booked next week, and you know, everybody says." And the Buddha said, um, "It's it's right to be to be uncertain because this is a complex issue." He said, "But what you should do not to not to go by a teacher, not to go by." teachings or tradition or scripture or logical reasoning even. But when you know in your heart that what you're about to do is for the benefit of yourself and others, go forward. And if not, refrain. Just don't take the bait. Or whatever it is that's urging you to act out of greed or ill will. Let me say some things about the, about the precepts generally. Maybe I'll just sort of walk through them a little bit and explore how they might, how they might function. Because right action is, is really um, defined by the precepts. Hmm. And, and remember, the precept practice is about our learning how to, to abandon tanha. That's the task the Buddha gives us, the second truth, tanha, this craving for, uh, this need for our experience to be pleasant, the need to, be, to survive in the future and to become something in the future and to get rid of the unpleasant stuff. The, the precept about, the first precept is usually presented as not to kill, or not to harm sometimes. Panatipata is the Pali word. Gil, I asked Gil what that meant, and he said it means not to strike at. So the precept, the first practice, is to watch yourself and not follow those impulses which are about striking at. You know what I mean by striking at? We know. You know just to refrain from that. Takes takes some mindful mindfulness to actually notice that all the time, but it's not about not killing. And sometimes striking at might be the most compassionate thing to do. If you were at Virginia Tech when that guy was walking through the halls with a shotgun, and you happen to find yourself there with a weapon of some kind, would your response be to say, "I can't inflict harm," and just let the carnage go on? Or would, or would the response be to take action? That's the kind of inquiry that the precepts are intended to stimulate. What is the best way at this moment to attenuate dukkha? 
So they aren't absolutes. They're, 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 um, they pose questions and they begin um, investigation and, and provide opportunities for insight. And so uh, a friend of mine in, in New York was invited to a party where, um, um, and in the, uh, she's a, a many-time published author with a lot of uh, feminist writings, uh, and she hangs out in that scene with, you know, the New York literati. She was invited to a party where there was a woman uh, who was from the Congo. And this is a party of, of people who usually make contributions, financially support, you know, the good causes. And this woman began talking about how in her part of the world, every woman between the ages of 8 and 60 regularly raped as the gangs come through from one side and then they come through from the other side. And as she talked about this, she was in New York because there was a uh, she was wanted in the, the Congo. There was um, because she was working against this, and she came and she said, "What we really need are guns. Not that we need to use them, but we need them to know that we have them." And my friend said that at that point the attendance dwindled quickly. But I think it's a question. I don't, I don't know whether there's a right, do you write the check or not? You know, it's that kind of inquiry. Um, and I've, I've discussed that in Dharma circles and found people with opinions on both sides. So it's not that it's a right or wrong question, it's a question that's intended to raise inquiry. Our attention to our, our attention to our intention. So that first precept about not striking at, not harming. What is not harming? What is the behavior at this point that is most, as, as we understand it, going to attenuate, attenuate dukkha? The second of the precepts is um, adhinadana, which is sort of the opposite of dana. It's taking. And it's translated often and rendered as don't steal. But it also is translated as don't take that which is not freely given. So walking by a tennis court in the evening and you see a tube of tennis balls that were left there by someone, the impulse is tennis balls. I don't play tennis. My dog likes tennis balls. You know, there's that. But the question is whether you're going to act out of that impulse, that impulse, that wanting. You know, it's a, there's, a, there's that, that greed, take, that, take those tennis balls. So it's not a matter of whether it's right to take them or wrong to take them. It's a matter of whether you're cult. What, what impulses, what, how are you training yourself? How are you practicing? Not taking what, what is not freely given. You know, if you're walking by a canal and somebody's being swept along in the canal and they're screaming for help and there's a, a coil of rope in the back of a pickup truck, do you go looking for the owner to ask permission, or do you just take it and throw the end out to the, you know, what is the, what is the way to uh, most reduce the suffering that's present? And so the marker, of course, is to call our attention to that, but there are times, the, issue, the other issue is, is uh, compassion when we're responding out of compassion instead of out of greed or out of ill will. 
I think that the first, the first of the precepts is aimed at, at drawing our attention to, uh, to greed, lobha, to the, to the longing, to the, to the wanting. The second, um, I mean, first one is to ill will. The first one is not to kill, not to strike at. We're striking out of anger. The second, the second precept focuses on, on greed and the wanting that can arise for those tennis balls or some praise, some recognition, a whole variety of things. The third precept is frequently, almost always, translated or rendered as not to engage in harmful sexuality or unskillful sexuality, sexual behavior that would you know, that would lead to suffering. If our organism has any built-in imperative, survival and reproduction, pretty much. Um, pretty much every cell in your body wants to survive and reproduce because they're all busy doing it. And so it's not a surprise that these powers are very strong and that, that the forces can lead us to acting in ways that are not that are not going to reduce uh, dukkha. But the words are kamesu michacharan, and, and the translation, as I've I've been led to understand, is about sensual, uh, unskillful, sensual activity. The kind of sensual indulgence that you know we might it might be comfort food, or it might be going to a movie, doing something. You know, it's a, a way to try to um, avoid, direct our attention away from what might be present. The, other, the flip side of, of this is, is um, the fifth precept, which is not to use uh, substances that will anesthetize our sensitivity to, to suffering, to unpleasantness. And that can be certainly more than, than drugs. Um, you know, I remember going to a movie so that I didn't have to think about how I'd just been fired today. <laughs> so I went to a movie, it was a nice long movie. But when I came out, I was still fired. <laughs> so it hadn't, hadn't helped a whole lot. <laughs> but there, you know, do you, do, but as a precept, it's a practice tool. Do you not provide uh, drugs that might, in fact, uh, lead to heedlessness? To people who are terminally ill and in significant pain, you know, it's a question of compassion, not keeping a rule. See, if you if you say the rule is you don't use drugs or alcohol to so feel that pain, um, no palliative care, that would be abiding by the rule, but it wouldn't be particularly compassionate. So I think the the third and the fifth precepts are about. Dealing with the, un- this is my own interpretation, my own story, I'm sticking to it. It's um, about the, the kind of responses we have to unpleasant behavior, to the, or experience, the kind of experience we don't like. We look for something pleasant, and um, we try to make the unpleasant go away. These are you know, normal workings of tanha, to become something and to obliterate the unpleasant. And the, the, uh, the fourth precept is, is about speech. In the, in the Eightfold Path, it's right speech is the element, speech that does not lead to the increase of dukkha. But it usually gets, it usually gets framed as a rule. Don't speak falsely. No false speech. 
Well, it's the same as, it's the same, uh, it's the Nazis, but false speech, there may be times when false speech is the compassionate speech. I have a dear friend who's, um, who spends uh, a noticeable amount of time doing hospice work, and she was working with a woman, she'd been working with her for several weeks, and a conversation came up as it turned out on the day, they become very close on the day I believe it was the day that she died later on that day, and she was talking um, with my friend and said, I know you're a Buddhist, but you do believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, don't you? And my friend said, yes, of course. And she said the woman just relaxed completely because she thought, oh, my friend is going to suffer because, because she's a Buddhist. And so what was the kind thing to do? It let this woman relax. If judgment were, if the rule is, you know, I, I believe, I, I actually ought to ask her. <laughs> but I don't think that it was, a, it was a truthful answer, but it was the compassionate answer. And the compassionate answer is one that comes out of, out of, um, Intention, the intention to reduce dukkha. You know, the, the, the kinds of speech, there are lots of ways of trying to highlight speech. There are four things that it, should, it shouldn't be false, it shouldn't be um, divisive, it shouldn't be harsh, and, it's shouldn't, and it shouldn't be idle. I'm not sure what idle speech is. You know, it's the same, it's sort of like that honking horn to say, looks like it's getting cooler, could be idle speech, but it could be just an opening to someone. Now, it's the intention, it's not the actual words you use. You know, uh, Chris Christie for president is one way of phrasing it. Chris Christie for president? It might be a different way. <laughs> it's the same words. But the intention's different. So it's not, so, you know, speech is very tricky. And any of you who've tried to work with it, you know, I, I spent years saying, okay, write speech, and then I launch myself into the day totally forgetting about the, you know. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I go, oh, yeah, the precepts. So, the things it shouldn't be. The Buddha said speech should be true before you speak. Should be true, should be helpful. So it can be true but not helpful. The default is silence. True, helpful, um, kind, timely, and from a motivation of, of metta. These are the, the elements that speech should be. Speech is also talked about in terms of the things that you shouldn't be talking about. So here's the Buddha comes to hang out with, to see his, his monks, and the monks are talking, and, and these are, um, he says, what, what are you talking about? And they sort of said, okay, these are the topics they were talking about, and the Buddha says you shouldn't. But this is for monks, not, not for lay people. Conversation about kings, robbers, and ministers of state. Sort of politics and business. <laughs> you know. Armies, alarms, and battles. Food and drink. It's the food section. <laughs> you know. Clothing, furniture, garlands. The home and fashion section. Relatives. Villages, towns, cities, and the countryside, women and heroes, the gossip of the street and the well, tales of the dead, tales of diversity, the creation of the world, of the sea, talk of whether things exist or not. So he said, you know, it's, it's just a broad brush here. <laughs> but he's trying to point out what the kinds of intentions are. You know, these aren't bright lines, these are the ten topics of proper conversation. Talk on modesty, on contentment, on seclusion, on non-entanglement, on arousing persistence, on virtues, on sila, 
on concentration, on wisdom, on release, and on the knowledge of wisdom and release. I think that's 10. So there, there are these parameters that are suggested. Speech is really interesting. Speech is, um, it reveals your intention really directly. You know, you can tell when someone's angry by what they're saying. And there are some forms of speech which aren't propositions that lend themselves to uh, true or false. You can ask a question. You know, are you talking to me? Is there an in- What's the intention behind that? You know, is, is it right speech? Is it true or false? True or false is measuring something entirely. What's the intention? It's about, it's, the, the precepts are about intention. And the, and the elements of speech, action, and livelihood are about intention. And by resolving, by taking, by setting a rule for yourself, it, it, it causes things to happen. So let me give you an example of a kind of, a rule that, that, uh, that I set for myself when I was in high school, because my best friend was always late. Always, 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 never on time, always late. It irritated me, and I finally said, I don't remember saying it, but I just, my way of, of getting back at him was to always be on time. So I've, but I've, I've resolved in the wake of that to always be on time. And that means making adjustments to things I do in order to accommodate that. You can also set a rule to, you know, John Cage was, I, I was lucky enough to, to be in a, uh, a class with him and he, once, and he said that uh, a minimum ethic is to do what you say you're going to do. And I thought at that time, oh, that's something I can do. If you actually resolve to do that, then you find you're, you're saying yes to a lot of things that you're planning on weaseling out of or you, you want to, you know, but if you say you're going to do it, and you do it, if that becomes a discipline, it's going to force you to pay some attention to the kinds of things that you're agreeing to do. So it has a consequence of investigation into thinking through. And of course, with all the precepts, the issue is whether or not you're actually practicing them. Buddha was asked once whether everybody who followed his teachings became enlightened. And he said, well, let me just ask you this. He said, do you know how to get from here to Gaia? The guy said, yeah. He said, and if you gave directions for somebody to go to Gaia, would they get to Gaia? Well, if they followed the directions, the Buddha said, just so. So you actually have to do this, and that comes into the right effort part, which we'll talk a bit about next week. Let me just say something about right livelihood, because right livelihood is often ignored. The Buddha said there were five things that, uh, five kinds of living, five jobs that somebody shouldn't take. This was pretty much the extent of his discussion of, of right livelihood, or wrong livelihood. He said you shouldn't deal in um, weapons, poisons, living beings, you shouldn't uh, in meat. Is that five? Weapons, poisons, meat, living beings, and other bad things. <laughs> what? Soldier. Yeah, it could be. I could look it up. But the idea is um, that there's not a lot of... In today's world, could you be a manager of a Safeway? Particularly if you've got a little lobster pound there with some lobsters in there, or oysters. You can say you've got living beings. You certainly have poisons and, oh, intoxicants. Intoxicants. So, right livelihood. Can you be a file clerk for Halliburton? No. So, it's, it's much more complex. It's not because the society is so complex. George Orwell said, we sleep 
soundly in our beds because harsh men stand ready at night to visit violence on those who would harm us. We outsource, we outsource our violence, you know. We're not separate from it. We're embedded in this world. And the lifestyle that we create is almost, it's as important as the way in which we create it. And the issue again is, does this way of making a living, does this lifestyle that I've assembled, does this lead to the aggravation or the attenuation of dukkha, of dissatisfaction? Temple Grandin, who's uh, just a remarkable woman, she's an autistic woman who has a PhD in animal sciences. I think she teaches at Northwestern. And she has devoted her life to ensuring that livestock have the most humane slaughter possible. And you could say, that's wrong livelihood. But her motivation is compassion for the cows. What is right livelihood? It's not a bright line. It's about intention. So speech, action, livelihood, and intention are in the service of the cessation of suffering, of abandoning tanha, those impulses that underlie our, our need for pleasant experience, continued experience. If, if um, the defaults, of course, are to sit still. Shantideva says, if you don't know what to do, sit like a piece of wood. If your only impulses are to say something nasty, sit still. Sit still, stay silent, and move your mind along to other topics if you're obsessing over whether you should get the hybrid version of the Porsche Cayenne or whether you get the... <laughs> I think the... the, the The sila elements, the ethical, behavioral parts of, of the Eightfold Path make it really clear that the Dharma eye is an ethical eye because the Dharma eye is about seeing into suffering, into dukkha, and understanding it and, and not, not um, not continuing. It's, it's about cultivating compassion friendliness, equanimity, and abandoning the, the, the longing, the wanting, the needing, That's, and, and the, uh, the, uh, the need for pleasant, the desire to become something, to be in the future. So just to not take up those impulses, to learn to recognize them and not take them up. Pay attention, he said to his son, all enlightened beings became so through repeated reflection on their intention. Well, let me uh, take a few minutes and see if there are questions or thoughts or disagreements or whatever, please. Yeah. Um, I really like the idea of not taking the bait. That phrase really speaks to me. And I heard that from listening to the Dharma talk from last week when mm -hmm. I couldn't be here. Um, <clears throat> and the other, my other thing is, a, my other is a comment um, about not striking out. Um, mm -hmm. So this morning I had a conversation with my daughter and basically um, she told me that I couldn't spend time with my grandson, which I'd hoped that I was going to be doing. So, you know, I wasn't in a position to respond at that time because I was on the cell phone driving a car. Um, but I thought my basic reaction was to try and make her feel guilty, you know, to make some comment that would make her feel guilty. Anyway, um, fortunately, I had a break. And when I did get back to her, um, you know, I just responded by saying, I'm glad she, that they were all feeling well enough to take a trip. So I was able to turn it around and not 
do what I think would have been maybe in the striking back category. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And my, my other thought is that modern psychology provides us with a lot of tools for um, right speech, um, such as, um, I want to say non-confr- non-confrontational responding, but I've forgotten the name of the... Um, Non, non, Non-violent communication, yeah. thank you very much. So I think that when we look at the Dharma, and as I'm studying it now for quite a short time, a lot of it really is in line with what we know from modern psychology, which was not known in the time of the Buddha. So it's interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, thank you. I, I know the, 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 the really deep feeling about wanting to be with your grandkids and when it's not possible. It's hard to be with that sadness. Yeah. I have sort of a question. Um, I don't Except um, lately I've been buying clams. Uh, maybe I could buy some other mollusks. So you're into mollusks. So, uh, yeah, that's better. So um, uh, my understanding is clams, mussels, oysters, um, uh, scallops don't have brains. Yeah. So I figure how much suffering can there be in their case? Uh, so I've been buying clams, but, you know, I'm, I'm questioning it. They'll, they'll still try to close their shells, shells up if you try to open them. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? On clams, <laughs> it it seem, it does seem like it's a kind of a, an aversion response, closing the shell. That's my thought. <laughs> he wants to close up, yeah. And the clams that 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 came from, uh, if a if a clam was not so hot to close up his shell when threatened, well, that clam probably wouldn't pass on its genes. So I think that the, the genetic inheritance of the clam, now the Buddha said these beings don't want to die any more than we do. That's because it's cultured into the organism. Now that's, you know, the Buddha didn't have evolutionary biology as a metaphor available to him. I find it very helpful in making clear the impersonality of some of this because we take it we do take it personally um. just to defend the clam guy there are some plants that also can you use the microphone please yeah, yeah. well it's not i i would just say it's not a bright line <coughs> issue you know and there are times i mean if you were living in on ice flows in Alaska, you probably would be eating seal. Or you wouldn't be living. Anything else? Any other comments or thoughts? I, um, I uh, just applied for Social Security because I recently retired. So I got the letter today in the mail. And stuff like this just drives me crazy, okay? If you're a single person, you can um, earn up to $25,000, that includes your Social Security, with no additional tax. If you're married, both of you can't earn together more than $32,000. (laughs) So, and, and my point of this is, I really take issue with these kind of rules because they're so unfair. They essentially penalize a married couple. Now, perhaps you could, take, you could take an attitude, you could regard the world as full of these kind of rules. There are. That, it is. They are. And you don't have to take them personally. And, you know, it's just like the climate. You don't take the climate personally and you don't take the traffic personally. 
And all these things are inconvenient and unjust often. You know, it's just the way things are. Now, when we, when we become reactive to them, we suffer. Our dissatisfaction, if you want to recognize dukkha in the world, look at your complaints. Because the world is the way it is. There's nothing wrong with it unless we decide that it's wrong. The world is just how it is. We have complaints about it. It's our dissatisfaction with the world. And so the complaint sort of is like the tip of the iceberg and the bottom of the iceberg is the, the dukkha, the suffering over this. Whatever it is, you know, whether it's traffic jams on the George Washington Bridge, wherever, whatever causes them, whether it's crazy rules, they, you know, crazy rules, my gosh. The world is crazy, full of crazy rules. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I do work at, uh, at Folsom Prison and I've watched as the guards waive rules, invent rules, and then enforce them. No. Uh, or waive them. Or you know, rules, part of the environment. Now, when the rules are causing suffering, in particular ways, and the motivation, the intention, is not anger or ill will, but compassion for the suffering that's the result of the rules. The rules are, don't go investigate that chemical plant more than once every 30 years, or maybe 20 years. That's the kind of rule that might be revisited for purposes of reducing dukkha. But just to watch our own response and the suffering that comes with that. Because really, you're not going to change those rules. Just complain about them and suffer from them. And they're going to be that way whether you complain or not, whether you suffer or not. They are the way they are. I, uh, I, was, I went to a, uh, an Apple store recently and they walk in and they now have several layers of triage. So the first you go in and they say, what are you here for? I'm here to get my computer. Go stand in that line. Well, I wanted him to get me my computer. It was ready in the back. But no, I had to go stand in this line. And I walked over to the second line fuming. Why do I draw? And then I realized I'm going to be standing in this line for five minutes, maybe ten. I can be standing in this line fuming. Or I can be standing in this line saying, gee, look what's going on around that woman is counting out $2,500 in $100 bills for her computer. Wow, what a, I would have missed that if I was just, <laughs> if I was just fuming. So you, so that's, don't bother the rules and they won't bother you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just made that up. It, I, <laughs> I have no idea whether it's wise or not. Any, any other? Uh, I hope that was helpful. <laughs> any, other, any other comments or thoughts? Next week, we will, uh, next week we'll finish by talking about the last elements, uh, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And I hope to see you then. Thank you for your attention.